Hello, and welcome to Notes on History, a podcast by a historian who has no idea how to make a podcast. I'm Paul Stetzel. Before we begin, I do want to let my listeners know that you may notice some inconsistency in the audio quality today, as I have had to re-record this week's episode several times due to some technical difficulties. Despite the fact that I begin every episode by telling you that I actually don't know how to make a podcast, it may surprise you to learn that I, in fact, don't know how to make a podcast. But rest assured, the boys down at the lab here at Notes on History are working hard to find ways to improve audio quality. Um, me. Uh, I'm, I'm the boys at the lab. Now, just like last week, there should be two separate recordings popping up on your podcast feed today. Like last week, one of these is a reading of a document, in this case the Currency Act of 1764. I know full well that it is boring as all get out, and I would only recommend actually listening to it if you are interested in the actual wording of the act itself. However, if you already have listened to the recording of the Currency Act of 1764, congratulations! You very likely had plenty of time on your hands, and you used it wisely to hear something you've never heard before, a tedious bit of historical legislation made bearable only by the smooth, sultry sound of my voice. Most people, especially in the 21st century, have never heard of this particular act of Parliament, let alone read or heard it read, but you're likely very confused if you did, uh, and or bored, because the act uses terms that we often don't see unless we're economists or very specialized historians, and it doesn't sound exciting or all that interesting on its surface. The Declaration of Independence, it ain't. But that's the thing about real history. It is full of little tangents and sidebar discussions that are crucially important to an actual understanding of the past and how the past created the present. There are a couple exceedingly important reasons I chose to include the Currency Act of 1764 in this podcast series, especially after the last discussion of the Proclamation of 1763. First, it will require that we talk a little bit about how money worked in the 18th century, which is going to sound a lot like Lydia Dietz from Beetlejuice, strange and unusual. Money is one of the fundamental concepts of human interaction, and as base and crass as that might sound, it has the virtue of being true. And the fact that it didn't just always work the way it does now might help you to wake up to the world in which the colonists lived. Second, if you had any notion that the people involved in the American Revolution on either side had any idea what they were doing, you could benefit from questioning that notion. The Currency Act is a great example of how these guys were making a lot of this up as they went. As I said in the last recording, we know how all this turned out, but it is painfully apparent that the people involved at the time did not. And it should become clear that if they knew what we know now, things would have been quite different. Third, if you still trust that the government, and I mean any government, will always do the smart thing, Two things have happened. First, your high school history teachers didn't do their job. And second, you need to listen to more of this podcast. At this point, you and I can only fix one of those things, so let's get to it. Let's talk a little bit about how money works. And I don't mean how your money works or how my money works. I mean how actual money works. I talked a little bit about this in an earlier episode on economics when I used the history of Roman coinage as an example, but this is a little more involved, so b buckle up. Today, 
you probably have a bank account and if you're working and you're not a historian or a genealogist like me every couple of weeks the, the little numbers in that account go up and you know that the change is somehow related to what you do every day and you also know that if you get caught doing something really gross in the office coffee pot those little numbers are going to stop going up the american colonists of the 18th century would not recognize those little numbers as money in fact, the only thing that causes it to be money is that we all agree that it is money. And we probably wouldn't even do that if the U.S. government didn't make it known that it will accept dollars and only dollars as payment for taxes. So, here, I'm not going to cover the different changes in American monetary policy over the centuries the way I did with Roman currency in that economics podcast. Uh, we're really only interested here in the history of money up to the Revolution and especially the years immediately leading up to 1764. Now, I, I recommend Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations for a good discussion on this, but here's the gist of it. A barter economy is too cumbersome. That's where if you and I each have something the other wants, we can make an exchange. Uh, I have a cow, you want a cow. You have a couple dozen chickens, I like eggs for breakfast in the morning. Bam! This works really well enough right up until the moment it doesn't. For example, if I have cows and I don't want to buy chickens, let's say I want to buy salt, I would have to purchase enough salt to make it worth trading a whole cow, unless I was willing to butcher the whole cow, since, since you obviously can't just butcher a portion of it. But what if I don't need a whole cow's worth of salt? What if I only need a hamster's worth of salt? I could trade the cow for a cow's worth of hamsters and then buy the salt I need, but then I've got an extra 142 uh, hamsters running around. Enter basic metals copper, tin, bronze, and later on gold and silver. Once we all agree how much metal is worth per pound or ounce, you know, whatever kind of metal we decide to use and whatever measuring system we're going to use, we use it as a stand-in for the value of that salt or that cow or hamsters or chickens. If a cow was worth one pound of copper and I wanted one-tenth of a cow's worth of salt, I can literally cut one-tenth of the copper bar off and trade that for the salt, hamsters be damned. I want just one chicken instead of a cow's worth of chickens. I can separate off enough copper to buy just a chicken, much to the cow's delight since I don't have to butcher the cow to get my chicken's worth. But we all remember the Dark Ages when we hurled little metal circles at each other to get what we want. You and I never used raw metals. We've always used regular coins. But it's the same thing except that at some point, apparently in what is now Turkey many centuries ago, someone realized that it was easier to have pre-sized metal bits that you knew had actual value and you didn't have to go measuring out metal shavings because some legal authority stamped it with a seal. And later on, someone thought that it would be a good idea to actually stamp the value of those metal bits right on them so that you knew exactly how much it was worth. Numismatists, you know, coin collectors uh, who are listening to this, uh, are going out of their minds right now because I'm leaving out so much of the history, but that's not really the point. There were plenty of little developments in coinage over the centuries as the values had to be agreed upon, as crooks tried to pass off fakes, and regular people became crooks by literally shaving silver. But that's not the point right now. The point is that by the time we get to the colonial era, people understood that actual hard currency in the form of coins stamped by an official government agency was way easier than hamsters, and they knew how to use these coins because, you know, they could count. Now, that's how basic money worked 
But wait, there's more. Here is a good segue into the second important point I wanted to make uh, about the incompetence of the society being greater than the incompetence of its individuals. What if you wanted to make a purchase, but you couldn't get your hands on actual coins? Couldn't get their hands on actual coins, you ask incredulously. But Paul, Americans have always been rich, right? Of course. Of course American colonists were rich. But that doesn't mean that they had any money. Here's a modern notion that bears no relationship to the real reality of the past. That being wealthy meant you sat in your office counting money while Bob Cratchit was taking the day off on Christmas. Wealth used to mean land, the production of that land, power or rights over other people, and only sometimes did it mean actual money. That was starting to change by the 18th century, but wealth was still not a cut-and-dry concept, uh, cut-and-dried tobacco being a measure of wealth in some colonies. It was not unusual for a large transaction to be sidelined by a lack of coins for a simple reason. The British government did not want colonists to have silver or gold coins, which were the actual currency of the realm. We can get into the basic problem with mercantilism another time, but the short version is that wealth was supposed to flow to Britain, not from it. And so the government had a long-standing policy of banning gold and silver coins from leaving Britain to go to the colonies. That way they could ensure that there would be enough, enough silver coins for people in the British Isles to make proper change for their tea and crumpets. But what about the colonists? Well, there, there weren't huge amounts of gold or silver uh, on the East Coast like there was in Central and South America, but surely they could scrounge up a little and mint their own coins, right? Uh, of course not. Of course they couldn't. That gold and silver that they might have scrounged up was supposed to go back to Britain. So there was also a long-standing policy of prohibiting the, col uh, the colonial governments from minting their own coins. They weren't supposed to have British silver, and certainly not gold coins, and they weren't allowed to make their own. Just file that in the back of your mind and be ready to retrieve it during a later discussion that I'm sure I'll do uh, when I start talking about taxes, which the Americans were apparently supposed to pay in the form of... I don't know. Remember in the last discussion when I said I want you to think of the British as the bad guys in all this? This is what I'm talking about. Now, the system I just described actually works in theory, so long as every colonist simply produces from their land what they produce, and they trade it to British merchants in exchange for finished goods like tools, muskets, furniture, etc., all of equal value. But if the money is only supposed to flow one way, you don't leave any cash in the colonies, and the colonists then had to come up with other forms of currency, which I'll talk about in a moment, the British government assumed that British merchants extracted the fruits of colonial labor for transport back to Britain, which was, after all, the point of a colony from the government's perspective, and didn't give much thought to how the colonists actually lived their daily lives. But from the colonists' perspective, servicing the needs of the mother uh, country was a byproduct of their real purpose for being there, which, after all, was to live better lives for themselves and their progeny. That's the incompetence on the British side, but remember that I said earlier that there was incompetence on the American side as well. American colonists did what Americans do when the government sets up silly counterproductive rules. They threw up a big middle finger and they said, this is America, I do what I want. And not for nothing, 
When a government sets up rules that hinder people from living their daily lives, the government is begging, begging, mind you, its subjects to find ways around the rules, and that's exactly what the colonists did. For example, Massachusetts did illegally mint some coins, all dated 1652, but really made for years after that, so that when London asked where these coins came from, they could plausibly lie and say, well, look at the date. Those coins were made a long time ago, and we don't make those anymore per your instructions. Would we lie? Colonists everywhere had to use Spanish dollars, which were the closest thing to an international currency in those days. Now, interestingly, the Spanish dollar was actually a great currency. Uh, it checked all the boxes for silver purity, trustworthiness, and acceptability. And as a fun little historical bit of trivia, um, the Spanish dollar could be cut like a pie. The actual silver coin could be sliced into eight pieces to make change. Which, by the way, is why a shave and a haircut cost two bits. It's two bits being eight, uh, uh, one quarter of the eight pieces of the coin. But getting a hold of Spanish dollars usually meant trading with the Spanish, and that wasn't supposed to happen. Their produce was supposed to go to Britain, so if you had a Spanish dollar, it was by definition a symptom of, before I say this, everyone get out your clutching pearls, the black market. Think about it. Canadian money is today perfectly good money, and I remember when I was young, stores near the border had no problem taking Canadian coins, but... How would Americans feel today if they had to use Canadian money, not because it got mixed in with their own pocket change at the vending machine, but because you were told that American money was for the people in Washington, D.C., and you rubes out in the rest of the country needed to be happy with the barter system? You go and trade your inferior tobacco amongst yourselves, but send the good stuff on along. But most importantly here, the amount of Massachusetts and Spanish money floating around wasn't enough to keep colonial economies running smoothly. So they wrote out, and here it comes, IOUs when they couldn't come up with actual cash. That's the American incompetence I promised you. These IOUs, they were called bills of credit. They are what would later evolve into our paper dollars. But up front, they were literally just pieces of paper on which someone would write out that they owed so-and-so a certain amount of money. That's easy enough to understand. You're a merchant in Philadelphia. You go down south to buy a metric ton of hemp for <laughs> ropes, but you didn't want to travel with a bunch of heavy coins, so you write out a pinky promise on paper that you will pay the next time your hemp dealer, a respectable hemp merchant, is in Philly. But because using paper made things so much easier than coins in certain situations, especially when you couldn't get coins, both the British and especially the colonial governments started writing out these notes for particular amounts of money that were payable to whoever had them, instead of someone who was actually named on the piece of paper. Starting in about 1690, this was especially true in times of war, when governments needed to pay for large amounts of supplies but didn't want a bunch of gold and silver rolling around on carts or on ships from place to place where they could be stolen by an enemy. So, governments on both sides of the Atlantic started issuing these bills of credit, which sounded like a great idea at the time, especially during the French and Indian War when tons of these bills were created. But people started noticing that prices were getting awfully high. They felt like we feel today. Uh, I am right now re-recording this 
in September of 2023. And as I'm recording, my wife is out at the grocery store right now, and I, I shudder to think what she's going to come home with on that receipt. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Benjamin Franklin mentioned this in a letter to Richard Jackson in March of 1763, and he pegged the reason pretty spot on. There was too much money. Paul, Paul, wait a second. How can there be too much money? Doesn't more money mean more wealth? No, it doesn't. They wrote out all these bills of credit, but you couldn't really trade them in for gold or silver since they were typically based on things like the total value of land or what the government thought would be owed to it in taxes. There was some money floating around, but it wasn't as though someone went out, counted up all the money, and then wrote out paper bills in amounts that matched the actual money that was out there. In 1764, in Rhode Island, this is just an example, for every hundred pounds in bills of credit that had been written out, you could only back up about 60 pounds of it with coins, mortgages on land, or commodities. That means that if someone owed you 100, dollars, 100 pounds rather, and gave you a 100 pound bill, they really only kind of gave you 60 pounds if it was a good day and you just lost the rest. At some point, the colonial governments realized that they had printed out too many of these bills and so they simply extended the expiration date that they had put on them in the hope that there would be more coins, more land value, or more commodities later on to make the paper bills worth something. British merchants and creditors obviously didn't want to accept these bills as payments at all, and with good cause. And Starting back in 1751, the colonists in New England weren't supposed to use them for private debts at all. But from the American perspective, they only had to use these bills because bad government policy in the first place, for which they could only be blamed for the colonial bills, but not for the ones brought over from Britain. On the other hand, American colonists were, after all, Americans, and they didn't like the idea of reining in the spending and giving up certain luxuries. So when, for example, Virginia tobacco farmers were importing more luxury goods than their tobacco exports could pay for, they still wanted to make up the difference with monopoly money. There's a, a great article by Jack Sosin from way back in the 1960s. Uh, it's still a great article. I strongly recommend it. It's called Imperial Regulation of Colonial Paper Money, 1764 to 1773. Having read it, the, the back and forth between colonial legislatures, the parliament, and the British Board of Trade, it, it reads like a Three Stooges movie. A bad Three Stooges movie, where Larry, Moe, and Curly run around in circles for an hour until His Majesty King Shemp shows up and beats everyone with a stupid stick. I'm seriously dumber for having read about it, though that's, that's not Sosin's fault, by the way. But how do you think the colonists felt? So, both sides are at fault to some degree. The British government was implementing diametrically opposing policies not allowing the colonies to mint their own coins while simultaneously stopping coins from going back to the colonies at a time when money meant coins. Americans, for their part, were spending like drunken sailors, using fake money, knowing by the 1760s that they could just pay pence on the pound to their creditors as though this system was somehow sustainable. But when British merchants want, went to London and asked that the government encourage the colonies to straighten out the issue, Parliament, <laughs> this is fun, Parliament responded by asking for everyone's opinions and then promptly ignored them in favor of a ham-handed, top-down solution. 
That would be the Currency Act of 1764, which, while it acknowledged that these bills of credit were actual money, it outlawed any new paper currency issued by the colonies, while at the same time prohibited the colonies from extending the expiration dates on the existing paper currency. This meant that eventually paper money would be phased out, and since the colonists still could not get their hands on normal British coins, they would be left with their underground economy all over again. They could still make paper money, but it couldn't be used as legal tender, which, given the question of taxation over the following decade, sort of takes the starch out of it. Now, speaking of levying taxes, do you remember what I said about how the British government pursued policy which had the effect of stopping Americans from having sufficient currency to keep their economies running, while at the same time they started levying taxes on them after 1763? Well, over the following years, that became an obvious problem to anyone involved. Eventually, the British government had to relent and allow the colonists to start printing up bills of credit for certain public debts, but by that point the damage had been done. In needlessly throwing their weight around, the Parliament had convinced Americans that they simply didn't understand the consequences of their policies, nor did they understand the realities of living in America. I'm Paul Stetzel. Thanks for listening.